Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Uh, Catherine Fieschi, the author of Populocracy. Just when we thought democracy was finished, everyone's been talking about the crisis, you come up with a book called Populocracy. So the masses have won, Catherine. Is that, <laughs> is that the message of your book? Uh, the message of my book, uh, I mean, the overall message is that the populist challenge is very much in the democratic tradition. It's just a democratic tradition that we don't particularly want or particularly like. It's heavily majoritarian, it's oppressive, it's unkind to minorities. And so in many respects, it's not the kind of democracy we want for diverse societies. It's not fit for purpose uh, for that. And the reason I say populocracy is that you know, it is definitely, you know, one of the dominant forms of political expression at the moment across the world, right? That, you know, basically this reference to the people um, is, is a constant almost everywhere we look. But isn't that what democracy is? Well, this is why I think, you know, it's been so difficult for uh, those of us who were, you know, relatively critical of populism to actually, you know, address it in, in constructive ways. Because to some extent, it's very, very hard to stand up um, as a Democrat and say, we don't like you, we don't like your form of, of democracy. Um, as I said, it's, you know, it's a democracy that basically argues, um, you know, that uh, the will of the majority is everything. And that even if you have a very large minority, um, you know, Brexit is a case in point where essentially, you know, 52% uh, of the people have, have spoken. And that seems to be enough in this kind of what I would call populocracy. You know, it seems to be enough to wipe out the opinions, the votes, the interests, the desires of 48% of the population. So it's a very particular kind of democracy, but it's true that in some ways, you know, they've stolen some of the best tunes about the popular will, uh, you know, about people being able to make uh, decisions as, you know, as sovereign and so on and so forth. Um, and it's put, I think, a lot of us on the back foot in terms of how to argue back. What are the intellectual origins of populocracy? Can, as everything with democracy, can we trace it back to the Greeks? Or is there something more modern about its origins? I think that to some extent, the, the populism that I'm interested in, the kind of populocracy that I, that I refer to, 
is something that is modern in the sense that I think it is a hallmark of advanced democracies, right? Advanced democracies because to some extent, I would argue that populocracy and you know populist politics are essentially a reaction from people in places where there has been a real democratic promise and where that democratic promise is seen to be broken. So whether it's, you know, continuous improvement for the middle classes or whether it's, you know, increased access or, uh, you know, ever increasing prosperity and so on and so forth. You know, these are things that often go hand in hand with mature democracies. When they are seen to be stalling, you know, this is this is partly when the kind of populism that that I'm talking about, you know, tends to emerge. So I would argue that it's a it's a particularly it's a modern form of politics. Who is the intellectual father of it? Um, I don't know that there is a, an intellectual father of of populism. I think what we have is an an interpretation of democracy taking it back to its very very basic tenets, which is that, you know, the voice of the majority is all that matters. Um, and that that majority, you know, essentially has a kind of a moral sense, uh, you know, that gives it, you know, the right, in a sense, to lord it over everybody else. I think that in terms of our democratic tradition, and in terms of how we've got to, to, to where we are, there, there's a confluence of things that is interesting. One is that we, we are living at a time where the, the, the digital transformation, digital revolution essentially has created some very valuable tools, but also I think some very pernicious illusions about our capacity to express ourselves, you know, very directly uh, with one another, our capacity to understand very quickly. It's kind of eradicated any sense that actually some things are very, very complex and cannot be boiled down to 140 or 280 uh, characters. So in terms of your narrative of populocracy, you would date it back to the beginnings of the internet? Is, is it any coincidence that we seem to have the rise of these populist, uh, charismatic leaders uh, over the last 30 years, just as the digital revolution has transformed society? I think that this isn't a coincidence, right? I don't want to lay everything at the doorstep of digital media and, uh, or, or social media, but I do think that the transformations of the media and the transformations and the impact that they've had in terms of what we want from politics, the way we conceive of our relationship to one another and to the political realm. I think that, you know, this in a sense has been, you know, it's been sort of uh, an exponential boost to, to populism because it goes hand in hand with the populist promise. Uh, that is to say, we, we understand everything that you're about. Um, we, we understand you deeply and instinctively. Uh, and uh, and we will deliver very quickly what everyone else is telling you, this whole story that things are complex, they're just bamboozling you. Um, we know that actually it boils down to some simple things. And unfortunately, I think that um, that 
that's something that that social media and that the digital revolution has heightened, you know, the, the, the power of that message of simplicity and ease and transparency. Uh, Catherine, so far we haven't, uh, you haven't you, you, uh, mentioned any names of these po popular crats. I don't know whether, <laughs> whether we call them popular crats. Um, are you including, I assume Trump is the classic example, uh, Duarte, Erdogan, Orban, are you including Putin in this? Yes, I think uh, I am including. Uh, and Netanyahu. Uh, I I don't I don't know whether I would include uh, I don't know whether I would include Netanyahu in part because I think that you know Israeli society in terms of the promises it can make about democracy has been in you know in such a state of of flux and in, in such a state in the sense of disrepair, you know, for such a long time that I don't know that what's going on is just populism um, in, in Israel. But certainly I think that, you know, there is a there's a populist there's a populist element in Israel. But one of the things that, you know, that populists do is populists are very good at identifying the enemy within, right? Now you could argue that to some extent you know, the conflict with Palestine is something like this. But really, you know, for Israel, it's a question of, you know, survival and the enemies without. So in, to some extent, I, I'm not sure I would put them necessarily uh, in there. But certainly the other ones uh, that you've mentioned, but I don't think, you know, we're here sitting in the UK. I mean, you we're know, in London, in Boris land. Right? We're in London, in Boris land. And, you know, is he is he a classic example? I think he's a classic example. I think Farage is a classic example. What will be interesting to see is how Boris goes on to govern, you know, whether in fact, you know, the populism has been heightened by the fact that, you know, he's campaigning, you know, and, and needs to elicit the votes of a very particular audience. So who came up with this first, Catherine? Was it Putin? Or, or, or were they all, so to speak, suckling from the same teat? <laughs> and they all somehow simultaneously came up with the, a similar strategy or a similar political emotion? I think, you know, I think populism has been around for a long time. I mean, you know, I would argue that, for example, you know, if you go back to Italian fascism, mm. you know, there's definitely a populist element. But these aren't fascists. That. You're not in that school that suggests that Boris or Trump or even Putin is a fascist. No, no, I don't think I don't think that these people are fascists. I think uh, Putin's an authoritarian. Mm. Uh, you know, I think Orban's an authoritarian as well as being uh, a populist. But I, I don't think, uh, no, I don't think they're fascist. I think what's interesting is that, you know, we see very strong populist elements in fascism if we look at uh, somebody uh, like, like Mussolini. Um, so, you know, this isn't strictly speaking, strictly speaking new. And when you say, you know, have they all been sort of, you know, drinking the same Kool-Aid in a sense, um, I think that they, there is a prototype for me in terms of, you know, contemporary, certainly European populism, and that is Jean-Marie Le Pen, right? Mm. I mean, he's the first one that sort of, you know, as early as, you know, the early 1970s, you know, starts to think, you know, how can I capitalize on some of the more reactionary forces, um, make sure that I don't upset anyone by criticizing, you know, democracy too directly. How can I flip, you know, democracy to my own advantage without, you know, giving into liberal democracy or pluralist uh, 
democracy. And I think, you know, he's the first one who basically, you know, argues that typical populist thing, which is to say, I am simply, you know, saying out loud what everyone else thinks, right? That's, That's a, very key. A, 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 a Trumpian trope as well. It's a Trumpian trope. It's almost, you know, it's almost universal across across the populace. And that it's and that's a very seductive idea, the idea that there's somebody up there where you don't even have to say it, they will say it for you. Catherine, you begin your book with Le Pen. Are populists by definition racists? I don't think so. Although Le Pen is, isn't he? I think yes, I think so. I think that um, I think some populists are uh, more racist than others, and I think that it's the populists on the right of the political spectrum uh, who are racist and for whom you know uh, d that kind of diversity as opposed is a to because there are of course leftist populists like Chavez, like Chavez, or in in France like somebody like, uh, like Mélenchon. You know, these are these are not people. I mean, Chavez. I'm not sure he's would have you know much fodder for for racism. But somebody like Mélenchon, for example, has always stayed away from that. Has always been very pro, not necessarily at ease with mass migration, but very much pro, you know, hospitality. And, and by the way, would you call Sanders or Corbyn a populist? Uh, no. I don't think either of them are populists, you know, and, and it's always very, uh, it's always interesting because when, when you start, you know, uh, doing this kind of who's a populist and who's not, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of uh, a tendency for people to say, oh, well, you know, that's because you like them, right? Um, you know, yeah. and, the and the fact is out of Corbyn and Sanders, I really only like one of them and not the other. But that's not the point. The point is that actually somebody like Corbyn is a traditional socialist, right? I mean... Mm. So, yeah. so, so back to this issue of racism. So you're yeah. saying that the populism by definition isn't racist. Some populists are, but not all. That's right. I, do, I don't think, I think that uh, populists need to define the this natural community to which they appeal. But I think that populists who are more uh, on the left, you know, rely much less on a racist or you know ethnicized definition uh, of this community, it doesn't make them you know any more palatable. You know they still you know exclude on a on a number of on a number of grounds. They still have this you know um, this tendency to ex to exclude and accuse all elites, all of the establishment. Um, they tend to be you know they're they're can be anti-Semitic and so on. But it's a different kind of racism from the kind that we see on the right, for whom the purity of the nation is, is a key thing. Uh, so key what thing. do all populists have in common? Is it an anti-elitism, an anti-establishment? I think it's definitely uh, an anti-elitism and an anti-establishment. Although in America, every politician, by definition, has to be anti-elite and anti-establishment, even if they're part of the establishment. Yes, and actually, you know, here, you know, if you look at somebody like Farage, I mean, he's, you know, or Boris Johnson, I mean, you know, these people are absolutely part of part of the establishment. Um, but they're the inner core, someone like Boris Johnson. It, Exactly. And yet somehow what, you know, somebody like him manages to do is to say, but actually you and I, we know what we mean by this elite. It's the people who, you know, are too intellectual, uh, who are too removed from, you know, 
the hearty, full-blooded capacity of everyday life. So it's a hostility to experts and expertise and learning? A hostility to experts, to expertise, to learning, um, to discernment, you know, to the idea that there are gray areas or gray zones, you know, but this is a very uh, Manichaean uh, view of the world. It's, it's black, it's black and white, um, not to, not to make a pun. Uh, and I think that, that in that respect, all populists have that in common. And they all have in common, I think, this sense, you know, that the, that the people, however they want to be defined, actually are the repository of morality and common sense, right? And that that makes them infinitely superior to those people who have book smarts or expertise or, or you know, uh, any of the kind of appanage of the elite. We haven't used the A word yet, Catherine. The A word? Authenticity. Aha! <laughs> I know that's what the subtitle of your book. And isn't that the key to making sense of populism, the way in which populist leaders have fetishized the ordinary people and made them the, the sort of the quintessence yes. of authenticity? Absolutely. The quintessence of authenticity. And also, um, you know, through, through that, it's made uh, populism, when I say it fetishizes uh, democracy, and one of the things that I, I mean by that is, A, that it's in the democratic tradition, which I think is, is important to note, but also um, that, you know, like any, like, like any fetish, first of all, that it's slightly obsessional about um, the, the very notion of democracy, which is, which is why, you know, you get the kind of the newspaper headlines about, you know, so-and-so betraying the people and, and, you know, you, that, that notion of betrayal. That sounds you know, very fascist to me. Maybe a soft fascism, but nonetheless fascist. Absolutely. And, and that is the, I think that that's the, that's not the fascist bit of populism. I would argue that that's the populist bit of fascism, right? That notion that you're not just simply an authoritarian form. You're actually justifying this on the grounds that, you know, the real people have, have been betrayed. Um, but, you know, it also, it, it, it's interesting because as, as you say about authenticity, one of the, one of the reasons why you know, the digital transformations have, you know, been such a boon to populist uh, politicians is that I think that, you know, the way that we've all been affected, uh, not just by social media, it goes well beyond social media, but really the way we've all been affected by, you know, the transformation of the world and therefore the political sphere by digital uh, media and by digital content is the fact that, um, it has tapped very, very well into this illusion that we can really broadcast an authentic version of ourselves, right? And when I see... When we do away with all intermediaries. All intermediaries. So, you know, the notion of representation becomes, you know, almost superfluous. It's like this interview. This is the real Catherine. Abs You're authentic. Absolutely. You know, a <laughs> little bit of mascara, but no more. <laughs> Uh, but I think that 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 notion of of authenticity, you know, it, it is again, it is very seductive. The idea that you're expressing something very real well, it's seductive about yourself. to some and absurd to others. Let's get yeah. to the, yeah. one of the things that particularly interests me is why populism is so annoying and upsetting <laughs> to liberals, probably like us. 
Is it because the people are so dumb or appear to be so dumb and they're being made fools of by the Borises and the Trumps of the world? Or is there something more profound than that? Well, I think that... And I assume you're not a great fan of this. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I, think, that's, I think that's fair. Although I mean, that's you're very fair, to say. fair in, in your analysis. Well, I hope that I'm fair in my analysis because I actually do think populism manipulates people who often have every right you know, to be angry or to feel left out, right? And so the first thing we need to do is, you know, to feel, to, to, to be compelled to understand, you know, why it is that, you know, we have vast swathes of the population that, that are turning onto this. But I think for me, that the thing that I find, it's not just annoying, but actually, to be frank, that I find heartbreaking, you know, and I'm seeing it, you know, right under my very eyes here in, in the UK, is that those people who are, putting these people into positions of power are precisely those people who are going to pay, you know, for the excesses. Of, the fishermen of and the miners and the textile workers. And, you know, if any and of them are left. If, if, exactly, you know, and, um, and, and it brings out, to, you know, also some of the worst kind of uh, stances from an elite now that is saying, well, you know, they voted for it. So now we have to deliver it. Um, I don't believe in it, but now we have to do it. And and I find that you know this is adding you know this is adding insult to injury, because actually again the people who really will be on the losing end of this are those people who you know I think have been hoodwinked. And you know when you know very angry you know, populist voters or Brexiters say, you know, are you saying that, you know, I'm not capable of making up my own mind? My answer is that, yeah, because actually, you know, you you haven't been, you probably haven't been given all the information. So how, how do you fight populism? How to fight this fetishization of, of authenticity? Do you mock it? Do you make fun of it? Well, I think it, I mean, to some extent, I think it is the job of some people to do that and thank God for them, right? But I don't think Does that anyone that... do it well? Um, it's walking a fine line between humor and snobbery. And snobbery and humor and disdain and, and dismissal, which is why I don't think that, you know, I don't think that most people in the political sphere, you know, I think that that's, that's the job of, of comedy, that's the job of criticism, that's the job of journalists. But, you know, I think that in the political sphere, we have to be uh, very careful about this. Although there are some people, you know, who get attacked, you know, on social media, you know, for their race or for their gender and who manage to turn it around with humor. And I have great admiration for them. Um, but I think that the the main thing that that actually we need to do and, you know, in the in the book, I basically, you know, one of the one of my points is that populism has kind of done a jujitsu on us. Uh, Democrats. It's taken, you know, it's taken democracy and it's flipped it around and basically, you know, hit us over the head with it. And, you know, we've been a little bit, uh, we, well, we haven't been able to react very well. And so, you know, what's the jujitsu move back? And I think that it's about actually not letting them colonize that idea of authenticity, you know, uh, and, and take it over for themselves. That idea that they understand these voters so well in a way that no one else can. Actually, you know, and, and I know that for some, you know, this is a conclusion that seems a bit weak, but my advice is that 
what we've done so far is we've tinkered on the edges with policy. And we've basically had these mealy-mouthed apologies about we're going to do better and we're going to cap immigration. I don't think that, you know, I don't think that that's the answer. I think that actually we have at our disposal, you know, infinitely fine-grained and granular information about where the pockets of need are, about, you know, what people truly are missing in terms of education, in terms of care, in terms of being included. The, the beauty of big data is not that it's big. The beauty of big data is that it's granular. So you're saying the solution to the contempt for the experts is more expertise? I think it's actually showing that we know how to use that expertise in a way that matters to people. I think, you know, one of the reasons that people have switched off from it is that expertise has been caricatured as, you know, being told you can eat one thing one day, but you can't eat it the next day. And, you know, scientists disagreeing and so on. That's what I think a lot of, you know, ordinary people, ordinary voters think expertise is. It gets in their way of leading their lives. How about actually using the tools that we've got in order to pr produce an expertise that actually, you know, very visibly meets the needs that they have. Because, you know, when the populace turn around and say, we really understand you, the fact is they don't. But might we be able to turn around and say, actually, here's what, here's what we're going to do. We're really going to bring this in. We're really going to address, you know, some of these issues that we've got, because actually we do have the information that we need to do that. Now, we've got a real big favour that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.